0: You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International
1: Studies. I'm Steve Morrison, Senior Vice President and CSIS and Director of the Global Health Policy Center. In mid-February, I attended the Munich Security Conference at which I organized a town hall focused on COVID-19. I was able to connect with some of the foremost leaders of global agencies, donor organizations, foundations, and others to discuss their organization's efforts on pandemic prevention and what needs to be done. In this episode, you will hear from Oren Levine, Director of Vaccine Delivery at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Today is Saturday, February 15th, and I'm joined by Oren Levine. Uh, Director of Global Delivery Programs at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Oren, welcome and thank you so much for giving us some time.
0: Thank you, Steve, it's a pleasure to be with you.
1: First, I'd like to talk about the decision to move ahead by the foundation with a package of $100 million commitment on the coronavirus response. And it has a couple of different, very important sub-elements to it. This was a response that was rapid, It was significant scale, $100 million. It came on the heels of a $10 million commitment just a few days before that. Uh, It came out, coincidentally, very close in time to WHO releasing its $675 million three-month plan around the response, so that proved to be very beneficial. Tell us a bit about the genesis and the rationale around that package, and tell us about the different component elements, and then we can
0: talk about how you're hoping that might draw others in with you. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for an opportunity to talk to you about this. Obviously, the Bill and Gates Foundation is guided by a belief that all lives have equal value. And so when we see a crisis like this one, one of the things that we immediately react to is what's the contribution that we can make? What's the way in which we can play a, a vital role? To be honest, we enter the space of, you know, crisis response with humility. Although we are a foundation with, with substantial resources, we're, we're relatively small in the space of uh, global crisis management. So we look for the places where we can make the most impactful contribution. One of the ways we can help is um, we can be fast and decisive. Right. And so sometimes in a crisis like this, a relatively modest amount of money early can be as valuable as the promise of a large amount of money later. And so one of the things we did is immediately put $10 million in to help strengthen the capacity to detect treat and uh, in both and, China
1: and Africa and, and sort of respond. respond, Africa CDC. We
0: actually then increased that to 100 million within a couple weeks as evidence became apparent that this is going to be a, a substantial crisis. So maybe I'll just talk through some of the, the planks of, of the mm-hmm. investment. So $20 million is going to the global response and it's making mm-hmm. sure that um, global agencies like the World Health Organization, countries like China that are work on this have the resources that they need to, to be able to tackle that. Another 20 million is focused primarily on addressing the vulnerable and the weaker health systems of the world. Mm-hmm. The emergence of this novel coronavirus in China obviously affected China very quickly and substantially. What we immediately were worried about was not only we were worried about the response in China, but also worried about what happens when this reaches other weaker systems. And so one of our very first investments was. Uh, to Africa, to a grant that helps the African CDC and the World Health Organization in Africa to build the laboratory capacity they need mm-hmm. to be able to detect this, to build the surveillance capability to track cases, to build the background and understanding to treat it. Right now, there's a requirement that in order to be able to detect this virus, you need fairly advanced type of laboratory detection system called PCR. And there was a limit on the number of laboratories in Africa that had the testing kits to be able to do this. So one of our first uh, priorities was, let's get those testing kits manufactured, deployed, the training in place so that initially up to 30 different African labs can now diagnose the infection if it shows up. So that was a first piece, and I think that speaks to the focus that we have on using our money to help the immediate response, both where the Epidemic is today and the vulnerable populations that it could reach where we have a little bit of time to get better prepared I just
1: ask you on that point. I mean what you're doing is putting a spotlight on one of the critical gaps that needs to be Addressed immediately. So it's a very important signaling exercise is your assumption that the 20 million that goes in that direction Is just a beginning and your hope is that major donors We'll follow in in the footsteps of putting additional ample resources behind this.
0: Yeah, for sure, uh, Steve. I think that one of the advantages or strengths of the foundation is our ability to move quickly, to put some strategic resources to fill an immediate gap. But the scaling and sustainability of programs that, that continue to provide that kind of public health surveillance and response as part of the social contract with governments. And yeah. and the other piece of our 100 million response, which I think speaks to that, is the work we're doing on what you would call global goods, the kinds of things where um, we can invest early and accelerate a process that leads to something that's really valuable to everybody. So we're investing, for example, in modeling. the academic modeling community is a very rich one with experience modeling many different infectious diseases and their their impacts and and Mm -hmm. the degree to which different types of interventions would be useful. Many of them had not yet modeled a coronavirus exactly like this. So the ability to infuse them with some resources to be able to start running those types of models. I mean, this is all tied to the level of uncertainties, right? Absolutely. And and I think it's important to stress that this is an emerging infection in which we are learning every day and there are significant evidence gaps. So someone famous, I won't remember exactly who once said all models are wrong and some are useful. I think that's true here. I think that what modelers do is they help us to organize the information that we have and to ask questions about what if, then lead us to empirically say if the range of uncertainty is broad on a variable that actually significantly impacts the outcome of this epidemic that's an area for us to to work on on resolving the uncertainty so that provides us as a guide the other really important set of global goods that that we can contribute to of course are the things that can be developed through uh, research and development we have about 60 million dollars that we've committed already directly through the response for improving diagnostics, improving therapeutics, and improving vaccines. And I think we need to, to bear in mind a safe, effective vaccine is a tremendous tool for preventing the spread of infectious diseases. But even in the most optimistic of heroically possible uh, outcomes, that is not an immediate part of the response right now. And probably the most important part of the response right now is just to listen to your mother. When she told you to wash your hands, you know, not to cough in other people's faces, she was right. And we need to always respect our moms. But right now, those simple public health measures remain integral to, to the response. And better diagnostics and better therapeutics are the kinds of things that might be able to help us in the interim while we're also developing better. How
1: much of a constraint is it right now not having a reliable diagnostics on hand that can be scaled
0: into these vulnerable situations? Yeah, so it's a great question because I think again, there's a lot that we don't know right now. Mm -hmm. And the diagnostics are both critical to the containment and critical to the learning. As you start to sort out which of these people with a fever and cough, are the ones with the coronavirus from which of the ones are just the background. Um, you learn more and more and you can increasingly uh, refine the strategies that you use to interrupt uh, transmission or treat them. It's a constraint and, and the fact that we are limited by PCR diagnosis is also a, a constraint for now. Um, I think ideally in a, in a perfect world, you'd love to be able to get to the point where you have point of care diagnostics where you could put in the hands of a clinician and you know a patient, the, the ability to kind of have that dialogue right away. Many of us who've had a cough or fever recently in North America, Europe, and those types of places may have been to a clinic where we've gotten a flu test and you've gotten a readout really quickly. That's the kind of diagnostic that would be great to have in the future.
1: When you made this commitment for $100 million, this was twice the level of the commitment made by the foundation at the onset of the Ebola Operating. It is bigger.
0: Our bull contributions were 75 million, this is at 100. the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. so there's is 100. So there was a deliberate kind of
1: statement embedded in that about the gravity of this situation. Can you say a bit about that? I mean, these, this was signaling to the world that, from the foundation standpoint, people needed to sit up and pay closer attention to this.
0: You're right, Steve. This is a signal, but I also think it comes from a more basic place. Mm-hmm. Our foundation is very committed to the mission of improving people's lives. Mm-hmm. We have audacious goals like trying to get rid of polio and malaria from the world, assuring that every woman has the access to you know, safe family planning methods. And so when a threat to global health emerges like this, it's actually visceral in the building mm-hmm. that people say, what are we doing about that? We can't sit here and talk about all these other things that we're worried about and let the rest of the world take care of this problem. So yes, it's a signal and I think there are some unique contributions, but I think it's really born out of the DNA of of the foundation and Bill and Melinda themselves that they are committed to improving the human condition and just can't imagine an an instance where we would stand by while the rest of the world uh, went at this um, on their own.
1: And is your hope now that You'll be able to use that to leverage additional commitments. Are you actively talking to other donors or other foundations around
0: think to build
1: this up in this period?
0: Yeah, Steve. So I think in many ways we are blessed by the fact that we have some really significant partnerships already in existence. Mm -hmm. So, yes, we've made a $100 million commitment in response to this particular outbreak, But importantly, after the start of the last Ebola epidemic in in West Africa, the world came together and said, we've got to have a better way of getting prepared with innovations for these kinds of epidemics and created the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations called CEPI. So yes, we're making some investments, but CEPI has already made investments in four different vaccine candidates they're already working with uh, others on exploring whether there are treatments out there that could be repurposed to help treat coronavirus and and the like. So in many ways, we're filling a short-term gap Mm -hmm. with um, some of the investment that we're uh, making right now and counting on the partnerships that we have that involve us and many other governments to help scale interventions, if we need and get a uh, safe, efficacious vaccine, we're going to count on Gavi the Vaccine Alliance to make sure that that vaccine doesn't just go to wealthy countries or people who can afford the vaccine, that it gets rapidly scaled in Mm -hmm. vulnerable populations as well. And so there's, there's a lot of hope that the investments we're making in public goods now will be catalytic, and that the kinds of global partnerships that the world has created can be a big part of carrying forward and scaling the kinds of things that
1: are. come Now Why do you think it's important for the foundation to be here in Munich at the Munich Security Conference talking about these issues today?
0: It is really interesting that we are here because I think we've always had a kind of understanding that there was an overlap between health and security. One of our biggest priorities is, is eradicating polio. It's obvious that much of the challenge that we face right now in eradicating polio is executing on the campaigns and the raising of, of immunity uh, in places that are that are fraught with conflict and, and, and challenges. We have an appreciation for security and health. Geopolitical and, realities and absolutely. I must admit that when I agreed to lead the delegation here in Munich it was months ago and there was no coronavirus and so the timing of the health and security overlap and the reality um, mm-hmm. that we are looking at as we're here together today in Munich is is really pretty revealing.
1: Now we had a chance last night to have a long conversation with the Norwegian Prime Minister Erna Solberg and that was revealing for me in, in the complexity of What type of message does does this community of public health and health security communicate to a head of state or a head of government who's responsible for communicating to her or his citizenry, but also to other peers, right? Peers, heads of state or government. So drawing from that conversation and others, at this moment in time, what is the right advice and message to deliver, whether you're talking to the Norwegian prime minister or to the head of government in Japan or United States or South Africa or Senegal. How do we characterize the moment we're in and what advice do we give about the threat that's there and how
0: to handle that threat today
1: amid all of this uncertainty?
0: Last night felt like a gift. Uh, so thank you, Steve, for for including us in that conversation last night. And the gift was spending time with Prime Minister Solberg and others. and seeing her commitment to learning about these issues and the way that she's demonstrating leadership was really impressive. And it shouldn't be a surprise to us. The Norwegians, as an example, um, have been punching above their weight in global health for, for quite some time. They're leaders in, in developing new partnerships and committing their own resources, et cetera. They were at the birth of Gavi and SEPI and many of the international partnerships that make our world um, safer and healthier all the time. I think as I've been reflecting on last night, what I'm reminded by is that this is a virus that doesn't respect borders or class or any of the kind of things that typically divide us. And it's a moment for heads of government to come together collectively and partner. That the best chance we have to manage this outbreak and to minimize its disruption on the entire world. Is to treat this as a collective problem not as a problem of one country versus another exactly exactly and um i think one of the things that i liked about last night where we had elected officials from multiple countries was i think they were seeing that we're going to be more successful together in cooperating to try and, and tackle this problem than trying to do it as individual states is probably not the right way uh, to go about it so I, i'm inspired by the Example of leadership and cooperation that um, I think is needed.
1: You know, one of the tension points was when do you begin to actively plan strategically for possibilities, right? I mean, we're in this funny situation. We have only 15 cases in the United States, they're all mild disease, almost all are direct or direct family relations. And yet, when you look at the bigger picture, and you listen to some of the modelers or some, you know, the Neil Ferguson at Imperial College or others, the picture is we have to prepare for some pretty stark options that may come at us. And you can never be over-prepared. Better to be over-prepared than under-prepared. But you can't trigger alarm. You can't be seen as an alarmist. So you're walking a delicate line as a leader. One message I took away is it's not too early to begin planning strategically.
0: Yeah, I'm kind of a planner by definition. If you ask my wife, I'd probably drive her a little bit crazy with all my planning. But yeah, I think it makes sense to plan for a range of plausible outcomes while also working really hard to make as unlikely as possible the worst possible outcome. But I think being in the worst possible outcome and unprepared is the worst possible outcome. So I'd rather be better prepared. Uh, upfront. And I appreciate the complex nature of leading in an environment like this where you need to plan and be prepared for scenarios that we don't, as most humans, really want to think about, right? And at the same time, recognize that in communication to people, that may not be the most probable scenario. You're planning for it, but you're also communicating to avoid unnecessary panic. And that is a really complicated balance to strike. And I have a ton of respect for the leaders who think deeply about how to try to do that and then successfully bring us along as, yeah. as people in an balanced way.
1: One thing that I had not really anticipated was in this particular crisis, as this crisis has unfolded, I had anticipated that decisions made outside of public health, decisions made by corporate leaders, by private sector providers of transport or people who are managing supply chains that cross back and forth between China and external markets, that even before you had significant export of the virus from China into external environments, the disruptions economically can begin to accumulate and begin to be quite significant and costly that that becomes a kind of early leading element in driving behavior and people going, oh my gosh. I mean, when you have a travel ban put in place, when you have all of these quarantining measures put in place, you have a a de facto isolation of China, 1.4 billion at 17% of your global economy, that begins to disrupt all of these multiple consumer electronics. Aerospace, auto manufacturing, industrial equipment, pharmaceuticals, and the like. We may be heading into a period where we don't see a lot of virus necessarily, but we see a lot of economic dislocation. How do you factor that into your thinking about this?
0: I think that's probably one of the areas where we need to kind of begin to exercise a new muscle in a lot of ways. I think that, rightly, leadership has been looking to the health community to give guidance on what to do and what to expect. And health leadership is doing their best in an era where we're, you know, just learning about a new infection and its transmissibility and its severity and all those types of things. But to some extent, the impact of the virus and the human response to the virus is captured in how the economy gets impacted right and so i can imagine increasingly that leaders are going to be hearing both from health leadership about technical responses and from business leaders about what's actually happening to their supply chains productivity etc you can imagine if at some point business leaders say half of my workforce isn't showing up at work either because they're ill or because they don't want to go to work because they don't want to get ill That's not a characteristic of the virus. That's a characteristic of the human response to the outbreak itself and the kind of thing that we need to account for. And so I think this is a great opportunity now for um, closer connection between the business community and the health community to understand the ways in which information from the health community is affecting the business community Mm -hmm. and how the business community can contribute to dialogue that um, might be important for the outbreak response.
1: Just in closing, any other thoughts on the sorts of things that you're puzzling over that are keeping you awake at night? You've mentioned you've not been able to get in this mad rush, get enough sleep, so what's keeping you
0: awake at night? Well, besides jet lag, I would say that I'm spending a lot of time right now trying to think about what are the range of ways that this particular infection plays itself out over the next year, and from where I sit, what am I going to be grateful that I've done to make a contribution to increasing mm-hmm. the likelihood that we end it, and what am I going to regret not having done if I don't do it now? And so I, I think a lot about that. I think that the front line of response right now is largely in the detection, treatment, isolation, etc. But the work that I lead at the foundation is largely around our, our immunization and primary healthcare work. This is rapidly going to be the kind of infection that is going to stress primary health care and health systems. And so trying to think about what can we be doing right now that gives health systems more resilience, more strength, more opportunity to kind of deal with this and how do we get poised for that? One of the areas, for example, that we've been working on for a while is how do we improve the effectiveness of campaign style delivery? whether it's vaccines or, or therapeutics. Mm-hmm. That was really driven out of the kinds of things like controlling neglected tropical diseases, preventing measles, all those kinds of things. And it occurs to me, we may be really grateful for that a year from now if we have you know a widespread outbreak and, and things like that. So those are really the concrete actions that I'm trying to get my mind around and, and how we can make a contribution.
1: I do agree, I mean, the, that this coronavirus outbreak and crisis as it's unfolding, is going to force a revisitation I think, certainly in the United States around what level of investment are we prepared to make in basic capacities and what is the central significance of those of primary care capacities as an element of basic security for societies and for communities um, and that element gets washed out at different times in the way we talk about these things. So I hope that may be one of the big advantages of this.
0: I hope that in the silver lining of responding to a global emerging infection we can return to the realization that we're one humanity and that our best chance at controlling something like a a virus that doesn't care or respect borders is to cooperate with one another and at a time like the world that we're in right now um where cooperation is pretty fraught we could use more cooperation this is a stark reminder Thanks so much Aaron. Thanks Stephen, thanks to CSIS for raising these issues.